Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the July 2nd, 2021 episode of Unconfirmed. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, is available for pre-order. Go ahead and purchase it on Amazon, Barnes Noble, Bookshop.org, or any of your favorite bookstores. Head over to UnchainedPodcast.com to find an easy link for pre-ordering. The Crypto.com app pays you up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin. Get $25 when you download the Crypto.com app with code LAURA. The link is in the description. Near is an open source platform that accelerates the development of decentralized applications, overcoming high fees and slow speeds with its fast, scalable, low-cost, and climate-neutral blockchain protocol. Learn more at near.org. The Oasis Network is a privacy-enabled blockchain platform for open finance and a new data economy. Start building your next idea on the Oasis Network. Today's guest is Sam Bankman-Fried, founder and CEO of FTX. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. FTX had some interesting news this week. Well, actually, it's not so different from other weeks. Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchen became part owners of FTX. How did that happen? Yeah, and we've been talking to them for a little while about working together, and um you know, we've obviously been spending a lot of time over the last six months trying to find, you know, ways to get our name out there more. And so that was sort of, you know, one of the big pieces of context. Um, here, just given that, you know, we we were pretty proud of our, our product, but as, as you know, one of the latest entrants to the game on the exchange side, um, we're definitely lagging in terms of, uh, you know, raw user base number. But, you know, I think the other thing is that they're just excited to work with us and we're excited to work with them. And that just goes a really long way. I mean, I know that, you know, Giselle's really excited on the the charity side uh, to, you know, work with the foundation on giving it. And I think, you know, Tom's been excited about crypto for a while. And so it was, uh, it was just a, a really good fit. And so Tom also tweeted his excitement about the partnership with a video of himself throwing a Bitcoin <laughs> logo that hits and shatters the moon. Did FTX come up with that with him? And if so, how did your team come up with that idea? I think that was him and his team, honestly, coming oh, up wow. with that. Um, at least I was not involved in coming up with that and did not know it was going to happen until it did. So, Oh, interesting. Okay, well, that's clearly a sign of his enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. And FTX also recently inked a sponsorship deal with Major League Baseball to have FTX patches on all umpire uniforms starting next month, and another one with TSM, which is a professional esports team. And they even renamed themselves TSM FTX. <laughs> And of course, everyone knows you also um, became a sponsor of the Miami Heat's arena. 
So in general, how does FTX think about sponsorships and about getting the word out about crypto? Yeah. So, you know, there's a ton of things you can do, obviously, and many of them are somewhat interchangeable. You know, many of, uh, uh, you know, sort of the blander ones are not that different than just running Facebook ads. And that's not to say anything against Facebook ads. You know, we haven't really done them, but maybe, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe we'll start. Um, but, but what they don't do is they don't, uh, you know, do that much for your image or your brand. And, you know, they're sort of dilutive, if anything. And, and so I think, you know, when we think about these, there are a few things that we're thinking about, but the biggest things are what are the people, the organizations that really a lot of people pay attention to, that a lot of people listen to, and what are the ways to partner with them that people will see? And and then the second piece of this is what's a way to do it that feels sort of exciting and authentic and and new and fresh rather than rather than just dilutive. And you know, I sort of go back to just so many of the advertisements that you see on TV, so many of the brand endorsements. You see, where you watch them, and, and I sort of feel like I don't think that person's family was convinced to use that product. You know, like like you sort of you see this endorsement, like I literally think that like their kids and their mom have no interest in the product after having seen you know they're, they're like the closest person in the world to them just you know film endorsement for it and i think that's the biggest thing we're trying to avoid is you know is just this sense of like completely commercial completely bland and completely replaceable you know fluff which you know i i think like it's not who we are it, and 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 i think it just doesn't do that much and so the biggest things that we're thinking is you know what's something here that's going to seem cool and authentic and and exciting and so FTX has two presences, one in Asia and one in the US. Yep. But a lot of these sponsorships, sponsorships that you're doing do target a US audience. So why is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a few pieces to it. And certainly like, I mean, look, one thing you could say is I, I grew up in America, like maybe that's just what I have the ear for, right? And and I do think that there's some truth there in that, like, you know, it's taken me a lot longer to figure out what would even be meaningful things in other countries, because I didn't have you know, 26 years steeped in, in their cultures, you know, to, to be able to tell. And it's so easy to mess these up. And it's so easy to think you got a great deal. And then it's a dud and you can never figure out why. And I think we see this and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of honestly, one thing we see this with is, you know, there are these like, you know, US sports team sleeve patches that are that are going around right now about two thirds the price of an arena naming right and they're just like like no one cares about them it's just like super consistently like no one can name a single one of them they don't stand out at all and and what instead it just sort of looks like is i, I money grabs probably being a little bit too strong here but this sort of sense of a team being like man how many times can we sell something like what if we take every inch of like square space and separately try and market that as like you know our whole you know brand that we're sharing with you type thing and, you know, I think when it comes to things that I have an ear for, I can kind of tell quickly, like, no, no one cares about that versus like, okay, no, that's, that's something that, that really is meaningful. Whereas in other countries, I just don't know as much, but we do have people on staff who do. And so I think that's not the full answer. And I think a, a big piece of this is frankly, the U.S. is where our name recognition is probably lagging the most. And a lot of this is because FTX U.S. didn't open up until a year ago. You know, at which point, you know, FTX.com was already, you know, like 10th or 15th biggest venue globally. 
And so, um, so I think it's just like, you know, it's only been around half as long. And, and so we have even more ground to make up in the States than we do globally. And why the emphasis on sports in particular? It's a good question. And, you know, we are looking at some other things as well. I think that there's a heavily overlapping user base and dynamic, which is one piece of this. Um, I think they're just, you know, among the most recognizable, recognizable people and recognizable organizations, you know, you don't have the equivalent of like, you know, what's the number of sort of like, you know, the, the premier clubs, the, you know, things like that in other industries. That's not to say there's nothing to do there. But I think that it, it's it's quite a bit more finicky and, and difficult to figure out what it would even mean. And uh, again, not to say we shouldn't be doing it even, and it is something we're kicking around. I, I think that, that a number of these things fit really cleanly in the sports paradigm. And, you know, if you thought about a musician, for instance, like what would be the equivalent of like an arena naming rights? Like there sort of isn't, unless, I mean, you know, some, something tells me that, uh, you know, we're not going to see... Uh, you know, Beyonce renaming, uh, you know, her act to FTX Beyonce or any, and I would not do that if I were like, that would be a big mistake on her part. That's, you know, so. Well, it would, I mean, I was thinking maybe just Madison Square Garden or the Barclays Center or something like yeah. that. But yeah, um, totally agree. There, there are, so most venues don't come up most years. Most of these deals uh, are like 20 year deals. And so each year, you know, there's maybe five or 10 that are opening up. We actually got a little bit lucky. There were way more openings when when we ended up getting, you know, the Miami, um, uh, you know, Heat Arena than in most years, or at least more effective openings because of COVID. I mean, it was, you know, formerly American Airlines Arena. And I don't, I don't know why American Airlines didn't, didn't renew. Like, I don't have any privileged information there. But if I had to guess, I don't know, it's an airline company, COVID, like it, sort of, you know, they had three stadiums. I think they've now cut down to two. Doesn't seem like a shocking decision. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned about Giselle being head of environmental and social initiatives. And obviously you yourself are very active politically being one of the biggest donors to Joe Biden's campaign. And um, I just feel like crypto is kind of at this interesting crossroads right now where it's kind of intersecting more with mainstream movements. And, you know, such as like the environmental movement in the NFT space in particular, or, um, you know, it's also doing things like gaining adoption in places like El Salvador, which some people in parts of the crypto community feel like, you know, kind of is, uh, I guess, opposite some of the values of crypto. But I just wondered, like, how do you think FTX can push these values oriented goals um, amongst uh, these different groups that sometimes are at odds with each other? Totally. And you know, I think that's a good point. And the biggest thing I'd say is we don't want to push this on people. You know, we don't want to prescribe for people what they do. I think the way we think about this is we can set an example. And, you know, it it's up to other people what they do. There are things that I'm super passionate about, um, you know, things Giselle is, and, and things that, frankly, a lot of our team care about a lot. And, you know, we're really honored when, when, you know, whenever we see people in the community sort of joining in on it. And I think that's sort of one of the most impactful parts of of doing this from our perspective is being able to, you know, to reach out to the community. But uh, but on the other hand, you know, if it's not for you, that that's totally fine. And so I think that, you know, one thing that that we're doing is you know, we're going green. So we're 
we're going to be buying offsets for all of the you know carbon produced by deposit you know crypto deposits and withdrawals um, through FTX, and I think we're probably going to do more than that as well. And you know, look at what we can do to try to uh, fund some sort of more cutting edge research in uh, or you know development in, in into ways to mitigate climate change. But uh, you know, I think that's something which hopefully Giselle you know has thoughts on or is excited about. You know, I, I know that she has expressed a lot. I, I think it's something that internally a number of us do, a number of people in the industry do, and you know, really excited to the extent this helps other people think about. How they can help the world, but you know, if this is if you don't care about this, that that's you know, totally up to you. All right. So in a moment, we're going to discuss some of the other recent news involving FTX. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Designed for the next generation of blockchain, the Oasis Network is the first privacy-enabled blockchain platform for open finance and a responsible data economy. Combined with its high throughput and secure architecture, the Oasis Network is able to power private, scalable DeFi, revolutionizing open finance and expanding it beyond traders and early adopters to a mass market. Its unique privacy features can not only redefine DeFi, but also create a new type of digital asset called tokenized data that can enable users to take control of the data they generate and earn rewards for staking it with applications, creating the first ever responsible data economy. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Grow your crypto with Crypto.com Earn, which pays up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 by using the code Laura. The link is in the description. Back to my conversation with Sam Thinkman-Fried. So FTX also just enabled tokenized stock trading. What's your goal with that offering? Like, who do you think you can attract as a user that you're not attracting now? Totally. There's a few different pieces to it. So one of it is, you know, just look at these existing users and giving them, you know, it's sort of, you know, anytime that they have to tab out to another app in order to trade another asset class, we sort of feel like, man, like, you know, is that app doing a better job than we are? And if so, what can we do there? I think that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is just looking at there, you know, are tons and tons of people who have interest in trading crypto and also have interest in trading stocks. I think like one of the most poignant moments for me in this, and I, I apologize if I said this before to you, but it, it just really sticks with me is, um, you know, the sort of the moment that um, that a bunch of brokers, including Robinhood, restricted buying of GameStop, like literally that hour, hundreds of millions of dollars flowed into Dogecoin. And as yeah. there's just a really strong signal of like, it's the same people, like these same people who are buying GameStop are buying Dogecoin. And I think, frankly, the same people who are buying Tesla and Facebook are probably buying Bitcoin and Ethereum. And and so I think that like we're seeing and and you sort of like hinted at this before like we're seeing more and more convergence between you know as crypto gets closer and closer to mainstream mainstream is getting closer and closer to crypto you know because of this there are just a lot of people who want to trade both stocks and crypto who want to invest in both and we want to provide a platform where they can do that and so I think that's sort of one piece of it is just the generic like why not both philosophy but I think there's a few other things one thing is you know FTX is now basically the only venue in the world that offers real liquid 24-7 equities trading. 
a, traditionally equities exchanges are only open like 35 hours a week, which made a lot of sense when you had to be physically in a pit with everyone else physically there at the same time, do a trade. Now it's all online. It's all global. There's no need to have that restriction, but basically no other exchanges have lifted it. Um, we saw an opening to be, you know, one of the few venues open in the middle of the night U.S. time. So that's sort of another opportunity that 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 we saw there. Um, we can cross margin it with everything else on the platform internationally, and so that's sort of another really cool thing. Which again, there's no reason other people haven't done it, other than that's a little bit complex if you haven't built out this system. But you can use your Apple stock as collateral to buy Bitcoin, or you can use your Ethereum as collateral to, uh, you know, to short Facebook and. You know, what this allows is one integrated seamless trading experience where you can do whatever trades you want, as long as you have enough total collateral to support it. So that's sort of the background on offering equities in general. And, and you know, I, I think I've, at this point, I think it's basically public domain that, you know, we, we, we are in the process of activating a broker dealer license in the United States as well. And so, so far, this has been, you know, offshore, but, uh, but that, that, you know, might not be true for long. The other thing, though, and, and the thing that we just did is, I mean, I say we did it, but, you know, we didn't do the heavy lifting here. You know, uh, DAG and CME worked with uh, Boffin in Germany to create basically a regulatory regime for actually tokenizing, truly tokenizing these equities. And what that means is that for the first time, there will be, you know, fully backed stock tokens um, that you can transfer on the blockchain, that you can move to your private wallet if you want, um, that you can have control over, and that are redeemable for the underlying equity. Um, and they'll be trading on FTX, and you know, they'll be creatable and redeemable as always. But you know, uh, there's also now the, the green light to make these movable. And I think that is really exciting because it is basically for the first time really actually bridging the gap between equities and blockchain. This is all very fascinating. And I think some of the description that you gave there of the tokenized stock offering is meant to differentiate FTX's offering from the one by Binance. Is that correct? Like, because Binance, I believe they follow the market hours, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's, a, there's I, this much more like sort of, you know, the, the traditional Robin Hood type experience. Yeah, so... You know, FTX and Binance are similar in a few different ways, you know, with having a U.S. venue right. and a and a, one based in Asia. And obviously, we're seeing now Binance's approach of playing it a little bit on the looser side with regulation is starting to see blowback. And they're even kind of being booted from some companies or countries. So how does FTX avoid the same fate? Yeah, totally. And, you know, obviously, I can't speak to you know, what's happening, you know, with them and I will say they've done absolutely phenomenally over the last year as a company. I mean, their well, growth has been, you know, they're, they're the only exchange that's been growing at the same rate that FTX has over the last couple of years. Um, but it's super impressive because, you know, they started from a high point and then kept growing and growing rapidly. So, uh, you know, and kudos to them for, for that growth. I think when it comes to the regulatory side, obviously, you know, there's been some differences in our approach. I've been, you know, certainly happy to have been doing things the way we are. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that I would say here is it's easy to run a business that will never run afoul of regulators if you just don't do anything, right? That's, that, that, I mean, it's sort of trivial, but it's like worth noting, right? If your business literally is just a company with no business and no, no activities, you're not breaking any laws. 
And the reason I say this is this is how I think a lot of people think about crypto regulation. They just have a single dimension of do more versus do less. If you have do more, it's more illegal. If you do less, it's more legal. And I totally get why you would have that prior. And to be clear, if you're just like acting without any regards for the law, then that is correct. Like if you're just taking random actions without thinking about the legal consequences, then yeah, the more you do, probably the more laws you're breaking. But the key thing, which I think, and again, this sounds sort of silly and an obvious to point out, but I really do think it's the thing people miss, is that you don't have to act randomly, right? And and in particular, regulators' goals aren't to kill industry. Um, and this is really, really deeply true in, in, in most jurisdictions that you talk to them, and this isn't just a line they'll say, they have a mandate from up high, like the actual country cares about fostering industry. Like, you know, regulars aren't trying to just like create a perfect bliss of no activity because in their country just implodes. They're trying to work with businesses if they can. And so I think the right way to think about regulators, and obviously, look, it, it, it's different in each case, but the right general prior here isn't that they're trying to fuck you over. The right prior is they're trying to find a way to let businesses grow while also having whichever protections they think are important for, for users and um, for the country. You know, whether you're talking about anti-money laundering, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, sort of retail customer protection or anything else. And, and what this means is that, like, I do think that there are ways to have an ambitious business that does a ton and, and, and maybe does even more than others while also being extremely compliant. And, you know, the big thing there is basically, like, just thinking hard about what is it that regulators do or, or, or don't want, looking at the legislation that's on the book, but looking beyond that looking at the comments made by them, looking at the history of actions, talking to them, getting a sense of what they consider to be a good actor, you know, what they, you know, especially when you're looking at, at gray area industries or industries where regulations just haven't been written yet, right? You can't just say, ah, there's statute 17, this is the answer, right? It's more nuanced than that. And it's understanding like, do the regulators in this jurisdiction see their existing, you know, commodities, uh, you know, regulations as extending to cryptocurrencies or do they see crypto as a new asset class pending a new set of legislation like that's sort of a classic question which you know when the commodities legislation was written it crypto didn't exist so they're not going to say whether or not you know ripple falls under that category or or um and so you know really trying to work with regulators and and you know our general philosophy is we want to be able to build the products that our users want um but we want to do that in a in, in a compliant way and sometimes that means applying for licenses and so anywhere that we can get licensed we will and you know we 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 have a bunch of licensing we're applying for a bunch more and we're reaching out to a bunch of countries that don't have licensing regimes yet and saying hey you know we'd love to be a guinea pig here we'd love to work with you on building out a regime for you know whatever it is for crypto derivatives and um so applying for licenses when we can get them so that we can do it in you know, the, the most straightforward manner from a regulatory perspective. And when there is no relevant license for a business, you know, understanding is this something that the regulators are comfortable with? You know, usually we guess, you know, usually we read that right. No one always gets it right. You know, everyone will sometimes misjudge that and then being extremely responsive to regulators when they reach out and say, hey, we actually are not comfortable with what you're doing here. You know, saying like, oh, to, sorry about that. You know, did, didn't realize that, you know, super appreciate that. Super happy to shut this off. Um, and, but we also want to talk with you about 
is there a path forward to doing this? Is there a license that we should be applying for? Should we be talking to you about, about what that might mean in the future? And, um, and, you know, rather than seeing licensing and regulation as just an attempt to kill the industry, see it as like an attempt to have an industry that is, is pro-social and, and, you know, good faith and, you know, working with that as best we can. And do you have anything that you would kind of name as like at the top of your regulatory wish list right now? Totally. Absolutely. Biggest thing by far always for us is clarity on derivatives. Yeah. This is the, you know, no competition for us in terms of what's the most important. You know, when it comes to AML KYC, which is probably the most important part of regulation when it comes to financial services, there is more or less clarity. Like, you know, there's lots of, there's lots and lots of, of, of case law on what duties financial businesses have to, um, you know, to, to know their customer and, and prevent money laundering. Now, there are some open questions there, which I do think matter. One of which the world is going to have to grapple with is to, to what extent does it, is it a meaningful statement to try and think about whether an autonomous smart contract has a duty to know its customer? Like, what does that even mean? So, okay, there are some open questions there. But by and large, it's like, yeah, we have an, an AML KYC policy. You have to. When it comes to securities reg regulations, in most countries, it's not a big problem for crypto. The United States is definitely on the more strict end there. And we would definitely appreciate more clarity from the SEC. You know, I, I think we're not alone in that, in thinking that, like, there's a whole swath of tokens where it's just like no one knows whether they're going to be considered unregistered securities or commodities or utility tokens or some new designation. You know, there's... Um, and so I do think that matters, but the truth of the matter is, you know, three quarters of volume globally goes up in tokens that the SEC has signaled are not securities, right? Like between Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, and then, you know, sort of most of the older tokens, you, you can add up to a lot of volume pretty safely. And so, so on that side, we would appreciate more clarity, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing for us by far is almost no jurisdictions in the world have come out with with comprehensive frameworks for derivatives, uh, for crypto derivatives. And, you know, I think they're sort of aware of this. This is sort of like on the 10-year roadmap for each of them. Um, but the, the problem is that like two-thirds of volume trades in derivatives in crypto. Like this is the majority of the space is happening in in, in futures. And, um, and, and so I think that's just by far the biggest thing that we would love regulatory clarity on. All right. Yeah. And actually earlier when you were saying um, for some of the other coins where you're not sure if it's a security or commodity, I was thinking it, that probably applies to FTT. Am I right about that? You know, I think in, in many, many jurisdictions, we have gotten clarity that, that it, you know, that it is a utility token, um, but not in all of them. And I think that is absolutely an example where, you know, obviously we haven't listed that on, on FTX US. And, you know, that's an intentional decision. And I think that is certainly something where, you know, we would love SEC clarity. And I think there's a whole host of tokens where, you know, frankly, these are things that don't have direct analogs, where they're not, you know, they're not, they don't quite necessarily obviously fit into like, like, it's not like, like a, an edible commodity or like a precious gem. It's not like, you know, a, a voting equity. It's not like, like, is, is it a currency? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, right. And, and so you're sort of like, like, Really, the answer is what is a cryptocurrency? I mean, it's it's a new type of thing, and um, you know, it's a sort of utility token space in crypto is one where you know I think long run we're not going to see them classified as existing objects. Long run, we're going to see new regulations coming out, 
that define them as a new asset class and come up with some set of, 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 of rules around them. Uh, but that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in the US, we're really going to have to see because I just feel like I'm seeing kind of a huge range from some of the different lawmakers. So we'll see what oh, happens. Yeah, right. I mean, you listen to the hearing today and there's just, yeah, a really wide range of opinions. Yeah, yeah. Um, almost disturbingly wide. <laughs> uh, right. but, I mean, <laughs> yep. let me, and when I say that, I mean, for all the education that I think the industry has done, like there's some views that um, maybe seem a little bit less informed. But I, I'd certain, some of them were certainly out there. Um, but I think a lot of them were also, yeah, I don't know, it's reasonable. You could also reasonably think something very different. You know, it's, and you know, whatever the regime is, it is. And the biggest thing is like preventing scenarios where there's no, where, where there's no reasonable path forward. That, that's the thing that's most frustrating. You know, if you tell us like, you know, just go for it, but don't be a dick and don't do anything scammy. Don't do anything that takes advantage of users. I don't do anything that like helps money laundering and don't do anything you obviously think you shouldn't do. And we'll give feedback as it goes along. We can work with that. You know, and if instead you say, look, you can't do anything until you have a license and here's a license, here's the application process. Super happy to work with that. The most frustrating thing is you need a license, but also we haven't come up with one yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right now it's a little bit slow moving here in the U.S. But yeah. All right. Well, I had, you know, a ton of other things I also want to ask you about, but maybe we'll just have you on for the longer show sometime soon, because I truly think there's so much that your various firms are doing in the space. And, and frankly, yeah. for any given one of them, we could spend an hour discussing some of the topics. Oh, there's so much going on. Yeah. Always happy to come on. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. It's been such a pleasure. It's don't been fun as always. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Did you know nearly $338 million worth of NFTs were sent last year? And in 2021, that number is growing faster than ever. If you're looking to make your first NFT, check out NIR's fast, scalable, low-cost, open-source platform. NIR is investing 80 million NIR tokens in community-led projects over the course of five years to power sustainable innovation through its ecosystem, with fundraising opportunities and support for DAOs and DAPs to engage fans and reach new audiences. Come learn why NIR is the infrastructure for innovation at nea.org. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, NYDIG is bringing 24 million people direct access to Bitcoin. 24 million customers across 650 banks will soon have access to trade Bitcoin on their mobile devices. Michael Del Castillo of Forbes reports that NCR, an enterprise payment giant, and NYDIG, a digital asset manager, have partnered with community banks and credit unions across the country to give clients access to cryptocurrency trading services directly through mobile applications. As part of the deal, financial institutions do not have to directly hold cryptocurrency and deal with the subsequent regulatory hoops. Instead, institutions can opt to have NYDIG as their crypto custody provider. Partnering with NCR marks NYDIG's fifth collaboration with a financial services provider since the start of 2021. The firm has already announced similar deals with FIS, Fiserv, Q2, and Alchemine Technology, bringing Bitcoin directly to many customers at those institutions. Next headline, NFTs are back. Maybe they never left. 
On Thursday, Animoca Brands, a company that provides digital property rights through NFTs, announced a $139 million raise that values the company at $1 billion, hinting that big money still has interest in the NFT market. In fact, NFT headlines just kept rolling in this week. At Sotheby's, an NFT of the original World Wide Web source code sold for $5.4 million. All proceeds from the sale will go to initiatives supported by Tim Berners-Lee, who developed the code. Christie's also sold a large NFT collection this week, auctioning off a set of tokens from Fawocious to the tune of $2.16 million. The collection, says the block, was inspired by an 18-year-old artist's experiences as a young, transgender artist growing up in an abusive household. On Thursday, Mintable, an NFT platform, raised a $13 million Series A, seeing participation from Ripple and Metapurse. Mintable is looking to double its workforce thanks to the influx of cash. CoinFund also set plans to launch Metaversal, an NFT investment vehicle. Vanessa Grayer, head of portfolio growth at CoinFund, told The Scoop that there is still so much demand for NFT exposure. She added, even though you see a slowing down in the consumption, I think we are going to see a lot of tools around lending, around the financialization of NFTs that are going to make the NFT space even larger than other spaces like DeFi, etc. Next headline, Coinbase unveils plans to expand. On Monday, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong took to Twitter with a bold statement, tweeting, Our goal is to list every asset where it is legal to do so. Armstrong's tweet thread made it clear that Coinbase is, quote, asset agnostic and believes in a free market with consumer choice, emphasizing that a Coinbase listing is not an endorsement of a token. His tweet came after the exchange added Polkadot, Shiba Inu, and Dogecoin within one month. Based on a report from Decrypt, Coinbase has aggressively picked up the pace of its asset offerings. In 2020, the exchange only added 21 tokens. So far this year, the company has already added 29 new tokens. Coinbase's custody division has also expanded, announcing support for 74 additional tokens, more than double the number of assets available to custody on the platform in just six months. This week, Armstrong also posted a blog announcing that Coinbase wants to, quote, become the place people also go to actually participate in the crypto economy by building what he called the crypto app store. He hints that the first step in building a crypto app store is allowing users to self-custody in the main Coinbase app. In addition to expanding asset listings and app store plans, Coinbase debuted a crypto savings account offering 4% APY on USDC. Next headline. Bitcoin's mining difficulty could drop 25%. According to data from blockchain.com, Bitcoin's hash rate, its measure of computational power working to secure the blockchain network, has plunged to 90 terahashes per second, the lowest it has been since May of 2020. Hash rate has been on the decline since mid-May, coinciding with the first rumblings of China banning Bitcoin mining. With hash rate plummeting, Glassnode estimates that Bitcoin's mining difficulty could drop 25% during its upcoming adjustment, marking the largest such drop in history and the first time since 2018 that Bitcoin's mining difficulty dropped three times in a row. The adjustment is set to occur roughly around when this podcast publishes, Friday, July 2nd, at block 689-472. Glassnode reports that Bitcoin miners who stay operational during this turbulent period of hash rate migration will most likely, quote, become even more profitable over the coming weeks. 
as mining equipment that would have become obsolete remains online and effective due to a global shortage of semiconductors and the amount of hash rate power in transit. For miners who've been shut down, Glassnode speculates that there could be massive sell pressure coming from two areas. First, a decline in mining revenue due to the Bitcoin price falling 50% from its peak, and two, logistical expenses and risk from relocating or liquidating equipment may necessitate the sale of BTC to cover fiat costs. Next headline, ARK Invest files for an ETF. ARK Invest is throwing its hat into the Bitcoin ETF ring, according to a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. If approved by the SEC, the fund would trade under the ticker ARK-B on the SIBO BZX exchange. ARK Invest is partnering with 21 shares to launch the ETF. ARK is joining eight other ETF applicants, including Fidelity, Galaxy, and NYDIG, among others. However, it appears the SEC is in no rush to approve a Bitcoin ETF application. In the past two weeks, the regulator has postponed its decision on Valkyrie's and Van X Bitcoin ETF filings. Next headline. Crypto markets were the talk of the house on Wednesday. Cryptocurrency was the main subject of conversation during Wednesday's U.S. House Committee on Financial Services hearing titled America on Fire. Will the crypto frenzy lead to financial independence and early retirement or financial ruin? The blog reports that much of the discussion featured a comparison between the financial crisis of 2008 and the current state of the crypto markets. Two other bits of regulatory news. The Financial Action Task Force delayed the the finalization of its draft guidance until October. The draft guidance, if implemented, could have a massive impact on DeFi and self-hosted wallets due to its strict language surrounding VASPs, or Virtual Asset Service Providers. FATF's guidance also includes the travel rule, which would force VASPs to transmit information to each other for transactions over $3,000, a rule that would significantly hamper many decentralized applications. FinCEN released the first iteration of a document titled Anti-Money Laundering and Countering the Financing of Terrorism National Priorities, which identified eight priorities, one of which was, quote, relevant virtual currency considerations. The agency plans to issue regulations to specify how financial institutions should incorporate the priorities into anti-money laundering programs at a later date. Next headline, Robinhood files for an IPO. On Thursday, Robinhood, the popular and somewhat infamous stock trading app, filed for an IPO with the SEC. The company aims to raise $100 million and plans to trade under the ticker symbol HOOD on NASDAQ. The S1 filing shows massive growth for the company, which has more than doubled the number of accounts on the platform and tripled its assets under custody in just one year. According to the filing, crypto trading made up 17% of Robinhood's Q1 revenue, which totaled $522 million. This is up from 4% in Q4 of 2020. Notably, a big chunk of that growth came directly from Dogecoin, which accounted for 34% of the firm's crypto transaction revenue, meaning Robinhood made roughly $30 million for being a meme middleman. The company's S1 filing comes in the same week that FINRA hit the trading app with a $70 million fine for, quote, systemic supervisory failures and significant harm suffered by millions of customers. All right, time for fun bits. The B word. Mark your calendars for July 21st because Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey have agreed to discuss Bitcoin with each other at an event titled The B Word, though the event is not yet 100% confirmed. 
As usual, Musk's acceptance of the invitation was somewhat odd. Here is the back and forth to end the pod. Here's Jack advertising the B-Word conference. The Bitcoin development community above all else. As more companies and, in- and institutions get into the mix, we all want to help protect and spread what makes Bitcoin open development so perfect. This day is focused on education and actions to do just that. Elon, by curious? Oh, right. Bitcoin. Ha ha. Jack, bizarre. Let's you and I have a conversation at the event. You can share all your curiosities. Elon, laughing my fucking ass off. OMG. Jack, let's have the talk. Elon, for the bit curious. Very well then. Let's do it. Wink face. Jack, done. We'll set it up. Based on the two CEOs' Twitter back and forth, it sure looks like July 21st could be quite the event. All right, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about SAM and FTX, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. And heads up, everyone, the Unchained newsletter has switched from a weekly news recap to a daily blog in order to keep up with the crazy pace of crypto news. Each morning, you'll get four to five quick headlines, a crypto meme or two, and a few recommended reads. Head to UnchainedPodcast.com or to my Twitter profile to sign up. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Mark Murdoch, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.